0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Something certainly big developed in my life, and it is the bane of every radio announcer in the country, and that is a chronic cough. Long-term listeners to this program will probably remember those days. Certainly my engineer is he's shaking head yes with his finger dutifully poised over the mute button during that period of time. Well, call what I thought was a season of dealing with post-nasal drip. I'm an allergy sufferer. It's something that's been in the family. So uh, for me, it just seemed to be load up on Mucinex and make sure you take your allergy medication, and surely this will finally go away. Well, days turned into weeks, turned into months. The cough became worse, and I'll never forget my reaction going into my doctor's office describing the symptoms. And the next thing the doctor did was hand me a prescription for anti-reflux medication. And I sort of laughed it off, and I said, Wow, what, what, me? I don't even suffer from heartburn. This cannot possibly be acid reflux. There's something else going on here. Of course, you know, I, I'm not a doctor, but I played one on the radio. And, of course, the Internet gives us all the answers, right? So I would certainly know more than my physician would, wink, wink. To which my doctor replied, give it a month." If it's still an issue in a month, you call me, we'll take another look at it. Well, within a couple of three weeks, it was clear that my doctor had nailed it right on the head. That as I've gotten older, and as our diets, quite frankly, are not what they used to be, this became a pretty bad problem for me. But is medication necessarily the singular answer to dealing with acid reflux? And if not, what can we be doing To address this issue, joining me now is celebrated physician Dr. Jamie Kaufman, author of a number of best-selling books, including Dropping Acid, the Reflux Diet Cookbook and Cure, the Chronic Cough Enigma, and her latest book, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. That includes 111 all-new recipes, including vegan and gluten-free. Dr. Kaufman is one of the country's leading laryngologists and founder and director of the Voice Institute of New York and serves currently as professor of otolaryngology at the eye, uh, at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai. And Dr. Kaufman, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. And boy, is your story an exemplary one. You know, it's just kind of a textbook in that regard, and it was just one of those issues where Uh, I mean, I've suffered with allergies my entire life, and all of a sudden I started noticing this this cough creeping in and could not have believed that it would have ever been associated with something like acid reflux. But at the end of the day, that certainly seems to be the case. But I I suppose the big question is this, you know, we're in this society today apt to want to take a pill to fix things that typically addresses symptoms, but doesn't get to the real causes. So I guess just leading out the gate, perhaps we can use myself as a guinea pig here tonight, Dr. Coffin. Um, is this a case where all of a sudden in my early 50s, my stomach is producing more acid than it should? Or what's really going on here?
2: Well, first of all, reflux simply means backflow. So it's backflow from the stomach. And the idea that people would have heartburn, and everybody knows what that looks like on TV. You see somebody who's overeaten who's uh, burping and clutching his chest or bursting into flames. It turns out that this is actually incorrect. The majority of people who have reflux don't have heartburn. So that that in itself is a, is sort of a wake up call. So well wait a minute. If they don't have heartburn or indigestion, uh, the, the the next question is what do they have? So post nasal drip, chronic throat clearing a sensation of a lump in the throat, cough, particularly a wet cough when you bring up stuff, um, hoarseness, particularly morning hoarseness, waking up in the middle of the night uh, with coughing and choking, gasping for air like a fish out of water, asthma, uh, allergy symptoms, and even sinus problems. So it turns out that there are probably 125 million Americans that have reflux, and only about 25 million of those people have heartburn as their major symptoms. So that means all these other things are a surprise. And not only are they a surprise to people like you, you, weren't, you were surprised when your doctor said you had silent reflux, but indeed they're also surprises to many physicians. So credit and kudos to your physician for getting it right.
1: Now, let's talk about exactly what's going on here. Uh, When we talk about acid reflux, and you referred to what just a moment ago, doctor, as silent reflux, what is the difference between that and traditional, quote-unquote, heartburn?
2: Well, you know, if you think about it, I don't know how old you are, but, I mean, I'm pushing 70. So when I grew up, my mother put dinner on the table at 6 o'clock. You could set your clock by her. And uh, everything was local. The the chickens came from a local person. Um, All the vegetables came locally. We did not go out to eat very often. Maybe uh, once a month we'd go to a steakhouse or or for a restaurant. And um, uh, 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 there was no fast food. People weren't drinking soda pop all day. So in our lifetimes, in my lifetime, the obesity epidemic, the diabetes epidemic, the reflux epidemic, the asthma epidemic, the sleep apnea epidemic, and a whole host of other medical problems that have exploded are actually all related, and mostly they have to do with how our diets and our lifestyles have changed. We eat later, we eat worse, we eat chemicals, we eat acids, and so on. Uh, if, If you asked me, however, what silent reflux is, Silent reflux is reflux that occurs at night while you're asleep. So you don't have heartburn. Maybe you don't wake up. But it causes all kinds of mischief, including in the sinuses in the nose and the throat. And then when you wake up in the morning, you have sinus, nose, and throat symptoms. So silent reflux is predominantly nighttime reflux. And it usually occurs with people who eat late, who eat too much in the evening, who don't have much breakfast or lunch and who eat not very
1: healthy foods. I have to wonder, too, doctor, in in terms of the impact. I mean, in my case, it was clearly irritating the back of my throat. And the minute that we addressed it over a short period of time, suddenly this chronic hacking cough went away. But I have to wonder, too. I mean, acid, uh, I've got to imagine, for certain parts of the esophagus, and upper throat area can't be good. I mean, the stomach is designed to have acid, and, and acid serves a very important function, doesn't it? It's just when it gets to the wrong places that it becomes problematic.
2: Well, you're absolutely correct. Not only is, is it not belong in the throat, when you look at the lining membranes of, say, the vocal cords, those membranes are a thousand times more sensitive to acid. The esophagus, the esophagus is the swallowing tube that joins the throat and the stomach. In other words, That esophagus is pretty tough. It's designed for it. Even normal people who don't have reflux disease will have some reflux some of the time after some meals. But once it gets up into the throat, by the way, we've come up with a new term called respiratory reflux. And the reason this term came about was to alert people to the idea that any respiratory symptom, in respiratory is nose, throat, voice box, bronchial tubes, lungs, the whole respiratory tract, any part of that lining is very sensitive to acid, very sensitive to, to digestive enzymes. And so we see these people who have been misdiagnosed or, or uncertain of what's going on all turn out to have reflux. It's about, oh, I don't know, 90% of people who have a wet cough, uh, which is an awful lot of people. Chronic cough is, is one of the most common symptoms for which a person sees a doctor.
1: Now I have to wonder, in relationship to the impact that that acid reflux can have um, on some of those more sensitive tissues, does this also put it at an, put us at an increased risk for certain types of cancer?
2: It does. In my opinion, uh, you can get cancer without smoking but not without reflux, and we're talking about esophageal cancer and lung cancer, throat cancer, and even mouth cancer. There's a lot of work that's been done on reflux looking at the relationships between cancer and reflux, and reflux seems to be a big, big factor. Uh, We know for sure that a cancer of the esophagus, which is reflux-caused, there's not much question about that, is the fastest-growing cancer in America in terms of its incidence, up about 800% since 1970. So that's a big change, uh, an eight-fold increase in esophageal cancer, so, we know that there's a relationship with cancer, but, but just as important is the relationship with asthma, with COPD, with cough, with all kinds of respiratory problems. And I think that if you look across the population, um, less than 1% or 2% are at risk for developing cancer, but a whole bunch of people are at risk for developing all these other things. By the way, including sleep disturbances and sleep apnea and snoring. They're all related in many cases, not all, but they're often related to reflux.
1: And, of course, all of this begs the big question. If this wasn't an issue that was so widespread a generation or two ago, what's changed? Well, Dr. Kaufman hinted a moment ago to what's changed. Our lifestyles have changed. Our diets have changed. And we're taking perhaps the incorrect path to address all of this. Well, certainly it's great that uh, certain types of medications have been developed, including these proton pump inhibitors that can reduce the impact of acid reflux on uh, sufferers. Is it necessarily the only way to go when it comes to addressing this issue? We're going to get to that part of the equation as we continue our conversation today. We are uh, delighted to have celebrated author with us and physician Dr. Jamie Kaufman. The book is called Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. Uh, this on the heels of a couple of other bestsellers on the the topic, Dropping Acid, the Reflux Diet Cookbook, and the Chronic Cough Enigma. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Our guest today is professor of otolaryngology at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai Hospital, and also a celebrated author. Her latest of three books, Dr. Kaufman's acid reflux diet. We're talking about this topic that impacts millions of American lives. And of course, the typical response to a diagnosis, Dr. Kaufman, of acid reflux by many physicians today is to do what my doctor did, and that is write out a script and say, here, in my case, uh, 20 milligrams of uh, protonics a day, and uh, call me in a month and let me know how you're doing. Uh, That would suggest, I would imagine, in my own mind, that it's like to say somebody who's constantly taking aspirin for a headache, that that somehow is because they have a aspirin deficiency in their body. Uh, is this necessarily a case of my, of my stomach, in my case, uh, producing more acid than it should on its own? Or does a lot of this really have to do with lifestyle and diet? In other words, is this really manageable outside of taking medication?
2: Not only is it manageable without a medication there now is increasing evidence that the medicines that we thought were going to be so miraculous for reflux are not so miraculous. Um, right now, the, the, the group of, of medications called proton pump inhibitors, they include uh, Protonix and Nexium, Dexalent, uh, Prevacid, uh, what have I left, Nexium. All of these medicines, they're, they're relatively powerful acid suppressants. But even if you take them, you still will make acid. So the best acid-suppressant medicine doesn't knock out all the acid. That's the first thing. The second thing is we've now seen a relationship with these group, PPIs, proton pump inhibitors they're called, with um, heart disease, kidney disease, bone disease, and most recently a question about uh, Alzheimer's. But actually, the most compelling argument against the use, and by the way, you were on the right way. If you're going to be on these kind of medicines, it should be in terms of weeks, not in terms of years. Um, the most compelling evidence against long-term use, and many doctors say, listen, just you know, take your pills and you can eat what you want. And the reality is that's not true. In 2014, it was a Danish national study of 10,000 people. And they looked at these people and found that people who took the pills for several years had a, listen to this now, an increased, not a decreased risk, an increased risk of developing reflux-caused esophageal cancer. So what that says to me is that these pills knock down the symptoms but don't necessarily control the disease. And so that gets to root cause, root cause. Let's just say you get invited to a dinner party on a Saturday night, 8.30. And from 8.30 to 9.30, you have a glass of wine, perhaps, or maybe you don't. You have hors d'oeuvres, and then you sit down to a rich meal, uh, uh, two, three courses, a chocolate dessert, and a pushback from the table at 11 o'clock or even midnight. Um, all the people at that dinner party are going to have reflux that night. You can't have a big, huge meal at that hour and not reflux all night. And so all of the risk factors, if you ask me what are the most important sort of uh, defenses that we can all apply, not eating after 8 o'clock at night, not overeating, making sure you have a reasonable diet, meaning you eat breakfast, you eat snacks, you eat lunch, you get most of your calories before 5 o'clock so you don't have to have a major refuel when you get home from work late. And then uh, Soda Pop. My first book's called Dropping Acid. And it's not called Dropping Acid for no reason. In 1973, following an outbreak of food poisoning, the FDA said you have to have a little bit of acid in everything in a bottle or a can to kill bacteria. Unfortunately, uh, people who manufacture these have decided that lots of acid must be good if a little acid kills bacteria. So we now have... Basically, everything in a bottle or a can with the same acidity as stomach acid. I know that's hard to believe. So cutting, out, cutting away from not only you know a soda pop, but also other beverages that are bottled, even things that look, look healthy like energy drinks and fruit juices have acid added. And then not too high fat. And so the, the bottom line is lean, clean, green, and alkaline. And alkaline or alkaline means... I'm not too much acid in the diet. By the way, I'm not a big fan of apple cider vinegar for reflux.
1: Yeah, I, I've heard that reported as a as a as uh, one method of dealing with it. I, I never quite bought into that. I mean, for me, if I was really desperate, a little glass of milk seems to do the trick.
2: Yes, milk is al- alkaline, by the way. For people who don't know, um, alkaline is the opposite of acids. So if you take something that's alkaline and something that's acidic, it gets neutralized. And so... Um, of all the things out there, there's something called alkaline water. And indeed, a water will percolate through the ground and become anti-acid or alkaline. So alkaline water is really quite
1: good for refluxers,
2: and many people with reflux will tell how when they started drinking alkaline water, it helped their reflux quite a bit.
1: So there is a degree to which trying to balance the pH levels does make sense. But as you're suggesting too, doctor, just in terms of, of the, the schedule and manner in which we eat, uh, not encouraging your stomach to go into high production of acid because it's just finished a huge meal and is now going to be working on breaking that down over the next several hours as we're sleeping is probably one of the smartest ways to start.
2: Well, you know, let's just talk about what happens when you lie down. If your stomach's full, you lose gravity, right? Stuff doesn't run uphill as well as it runs through a flat canal. So you lose gravity. You lose the benefit of being upright. The second thing is, if you let's just pretend you're a little overweight, when you lie down, the weight of your abdomen, of your belly, let's just say you've got a beer belly, the weight of that belly is now pushing on your stomach, and for people who are really overweight. Um, it doesn't really even matter whether they eat, they're going to be pushing on their stomach all nights, even with a little bit of acid, it's coming up. So being overweight certainly is a factor in eating um, and lying down. And, and by the way, it's not just, uh, it's, a, it's just say, you know, you had a busy day at work, you finished late, you went and an exercised at the gym, you got home, you didn't really have time for lunch, you're starving. Um, now what happens is that you're having a the biggest meal of the day at 8.30. So that, I've said it twice and so I'll, I'll make it the last time. That's probably the greatest risk factor there is for silent reflux. So that gets to the question of what do you do? What I recommend for people, and by the way, you asked an important question that I never answered. How do you know if you have reflux? There's something called the reflux symptom index, which is a quiz. It's on my website, it's in every one of my books, it takes about a minute to fill it out. You circle uh, nine items from zero to five, and if your score is 15 or more on the reflux index, then you have a 90% chance of having reflux. So you can look at those symptoms and fill out those uh, circles. And see if you've got uh, likely to have
1: reflux. By the way, I did take the test and I came in at a 27. Yeah, (laughs)
2: Yeah, sir. That's 27. Yeah.
1: Yeah, looking at all the symptoms based on what was happening at the time I was diagnosed a year and a half ago, uh, I said, okay, well, yeah, here we are, 27. I guess we answered that question. Hey, if you've just joined us, Dr. Jamie Kaufman is with us today. We're dealing with an issue that, quite frankly, millions of Americans are facing, myself included, and that is acid reflux. And as we're learning, the pill prescription might seem to be an easy way out, but it's not the best way out. And some of this research, including the Danish study to which Dr. Kaufman just referred to a moment ago, is in fact beginning to demonstrate that taking of medications to deal with acid reflux might in fact be exacerbating the problem and making the circumstances even worse. So what do we do? Certainly we know acid production is necessary. as the Fashion in which the body, the stomach, breaks down foods and processes foods for energy and calories that you need, and all of that. But yet, our diets today, increased use of preservatives that are in there, as Dr. Coffin mentions, a high degree of acidity as a preservative in so many foods today. And when you add to that, eating late, eating too much, it just becomes a recipe for disaster. All right, speaking of recipes, so then as we've understood what some of the causes are, and we know what the general medical community has done to try to address it, simply give you a pill, what's the better way out? If that's is needed, then how do we manage it better? And how do we deal with this matter of lifestyle and diet? We're going to get to that part of the conversation. Our discussion today with Doctor Jamie Kaufman—a look at acid reflux diet. The new book, by the way, newly published, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com, and you can also get it through Doctor Kaufman's website, VoiceInstituteOfNewYork.com. That's voice like voice, ah, Voice Institute of New York. Com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more remarks and insights as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. She
1: is professor of otolaryngology at the New York Eye and Ear Infirmary of Mount Sinai Hospital and also the author of a number of best-selling books, including the latest, Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. We're talking about this topic of acid reflux, what it is, how to address it. So far, the medical community largely, and I, I don't wish this to be a blanket accusation, but largely the idea of writing a prescription, sending you home some medication, seems to be the way we've addressed it. But as Dr. Kaufman is pointing out, that really is addressing a symptom. It's not getting to the root causes, such as eating too late eating too much, uh, eating, quite frankly, uh, the wrong kind of diet. Toward that end, let's get into some of the the key points here, if you can, Dr. Kaufman. Uh, The book, by the way, I'll mention for listeners, has an exhausted list of complete entrees and recipes toward the back. As we mentioned, over 111 new recipes. But as we talk about some of the major categories, Dr. Kaufman, to avoid, which ones are sort of the worst when it comes to being contributory to acid reflux?
2: Well, there are different mechanisms of reflux. So fat makes uh, uh, for reflux high-fat meals. Um, Acid makes for reflux um, caffeine and nicotine they make uh, the valves relax and make for reflux and uh, so if you if you ask me what I recommend if let's just say you take the quiz and you say gee I think I have silent reflux or it's it's a real possibility what I recommend is a two-week reflux detox um, it's not easy the only fruit you can have is melons and bananas The only meats you can have is poultry or fish. I consider fish-like meat. Um, No condiments, uh, only egg whites. Um, Nothing out of a bottle or a can except water or one cup of coffee a day uh, or tea. Uh, No alcohol. If you drink alcohol, it must be zero. And then the kitchen must close by 7 o'clock, assuming you go to bed at 11. So that it's a strict two-week detox. And usually what happens is in two weeks people go whoa my cough has stopped, whoa my voice has been okay or my throat clearing is better or this lump in the throat doesn't feel so uh, worrisome and annoying so at the end of two weeks people then say okay what do i do now the detox is listed in all the books and it's easily found this detox diet and it's a list of things you can eat rather than can't eat by the way nothing fried And the only uh, of the fats that we permit, no butter, is olive oil. So it's pretty, pretty tight. And if you really think about it, what it is is lean, clean, green, and alkaline. Lean, uh, there's no red meat or very little red meat thereafter, after the detox phase. You shouldn't be having red meat every day. Um, clean is a very important concept. If you have an energy bar that you love and you turn it over to read the ingredients and it has 16 unpronounceable chemicals on the back, um, presume that it's poison and you should try and find a new one that's much more natural and has fewer chemicals. I mean, many, many of the manufacturers are beginning to start taking out some of these chemicals and these preservatives. They're not good for you. And so that gets uh, to, to, to green. We know what green means. Green means organic, which is another way of clean. And also, of course, uh, 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 greens are good for you. So you start having things like this morning I had a three-egg omelet with one yolk and, and lox smoked salmon. And then uh, for lunch we got uh, roasted chicken with uh, vegetables and potatoes. For a snack I had a Fuji apple. Um, and uh, then an avocado, and for dinner I had uh, a a sushi. So, you know, I'm not saying you should eat like that every day, but it does represent a paradigm shift compared to, um, you know, two cheeseburgers, fries, and a Coke.
1: And as you're suggesting here, There are a lot of foods that are really triggers, essentially that the stomach says, "Okay, I'm going to have a lot of work to do here." There's much more that has to be, or something that's more difficult to digest, like red meats, and so therefore it's stimulating additional acid reproduction. Is that accurate?
2: Well, it stays in the stomach a long time, red meat, and uh, and and by the way, you brought up a very important word, the word trigger. Um, you've implied that it makes more acid. I'm not sure whether it makes more acid, but it makes reflux of the acid that's in the stomach come up. And so among the big triggers, for some people, by the way, none of them uh, these things that I'm going to mention are for everyone. Um, chocolate is a big trigger food for some people, particularly uh, milk chocolate. Um, alcohol is a big trigger. Uh, onions, garlic, tomatoes, peppers. Um, nuts, particularly macadamia nuts and cashews, the safest of the nuts for the reflux are, are, are uh, um, uh, pistachios and almonds. And um, uh, uh, too much caffeine, there's probably nothing wrong with a cup of coffee for most people or two or even three. But if you're drinking a pot of coffee before noon, you'd probably have reflux regardless of whether coffee is an actual trigger food. It's the caffeine. So, you know, the question is, what do people do? And in many cases, they they double down on their mistakes. And so I think what starts to happen, the reason I've done what I've done, the reason my work um, is, uh, I believe, is important, is it it addresses the basic question of what does represent healthy eating. What do we know today?
1: And most importantly, I I, I think, as you've underscored both in our conversation today and throughout the book, simply taking a medication and thinking we can take this one little tiny pill a day and eat whatever we want, whatever we want, is, is largely really been a, a wives' tale, hasn't it?
2: It's dead wrong. In fact, it, I mean, uh, we, at least in my practice, virtually every single patient who comes to me is already on the medicine. So we know that there are millions of people who even on the medicine are, are suffering. Uh, by the way, I should mention that it's not, it never should have been allowed to have these kind of medicines over the counter. And here's why. Uh, the medicine, uh, when you buy it, it says take it for two weeks. Well, what happens after two weeks is people stop cold turkey. And about half of people, when they stop cold turkey, then that's when you get this hyperacidity. That's when you have this, what we call rebound hyperacidity. So what happens is they were doing sort of okay for two weeks and they quit. And they get terrible symptoms. And then what they do is they, they tough it out for a little while, and the next thing they're back on the medicine for two more weeks. And so although this is good for drug sales and for the, for, for the manufacturers, it's not so good for people who do it. So this question about medication, I should point out that there is another class of medicine that, that is safer and that can be taken on an as-needed basis. And although it's a medical term, they're called H2 antagonists. And the three that are available are Zantac, Tagamet, and Pepsid. And those three are much safer over the long haul. They can be taken, gee, I'm having some symptoms, and I'm going to take these for a few days or a week, and even longer. And in fact, we use them in pregnancy.
1: Interesting. At the end of the day, then, doctors, you're suggesting that the, the real way to address this issue is by a change in lifestyle and diet. And that then raises, I think, uh, the, the final important question for everyone eavesdropping on our conversation, and that is of your patients that move toward the healthier lifestyle and the, the more friendly diet, how many are able to get completely off of any sort of, uh, of the proton pump inhibitors and be able to remain essentially acid-free in terms of its impact?
2: the vast majority, when patients come to me, they're highly motivated, people who have you know, terrible problems, breathing, people who have had multiple sinus surgeries, people who are miserable. Um, those people um, who are willing to stick with the program, what I tell them is, listen, you're going to be under my care for a year. Um, you're going to go on medicine to start out with, varieties of different types of medicine, not just acid suppressants, by the way. And the goal is to be medicine-free and asymptomatic and essentially healthy without any reflux a year from now. And that means that they will have, in many cases, lost weight. In many cases, their cholesterols are better. Their diabetes is under control. So we're talking about basically a big, 50, you know, like a 50,000-mile tune-up. In my experience, uh, 90% of our patients I get substantial improvement, and the majority get well.
1: Well, wow. that's a pretty remarkable uh, response rate and, and one that I think ought to give encouragement to all of us. The book is called Dr. Kaufman's Acid Reflux Diet. It includes 111 all-new recipes, including vegan and gluten-free, and it's available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also order the book online through Dr. Kaufman's website, voiceinstituteofnewyork.com. That's Voice Institute. Of New York.com. And our thanks to best selling author and physician, Dr. Jamie Kaufman, for being with us on this segment of Lifeline.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: We are reminded that prayer is the key and faith unlocks the door from that wonderful hymn of the 1970s, wasn't it? Um, Trying to think who sang that. I can picture him right now. Roger, it'll come to me. It's a Sign of old age. Roger something or other. Prayer is the key to heaven. Sometimes you get a little overwhelmed, though, especially if you have a reputation for being a bit of a prayer warrior and you enjoy communing with God, and yet, boy, how do you do it? I don't mean how do you pray. What I mean is how can you have a sense? When you say to somebody, for example, I'll be praying for you, are you good on the follow-through? Are you able to keep track of the execution on that? I know I, I have to make a list. If I don't make a list, inevitably, and I try to do it strictly from top of mind, uh, you run into somebody and they say, gee, uh, my son in law is dealing with cancer. Oh, I'll be sure and pray. I'll add them to my prayer list. And then a day or two goes by and you forget about it. And then six weeks later, you run into them somewhere at the grocery store. And they say, gee, my son-in-law is doing much better. Thank you for praying. And you go, oh, my goodness, I had completely forgotten. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. And yet is there a practical way in which you can pray for friends, family, community? Well, my next guest says, absolutely, yes. Simply learn to pray A to Z, a practical guide to pray for your community. Amelia Rhodes joins us. And Amelia, what a brilliant book. Uh, When I first saw this come across my desk, I thought, oh, another book on how to pray. Well, there's plenty of those out there. But then I started thumbing through and went, oh, wait a minute. This is a whole new idea.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that, um, that's kind of how I felt. We don't need another book on how to pray. We need something that will actually help us to pray, because I'm, much like you described, that has been my struggle, too, saying I would pray for people, and then weeks later realizing, wow, I only prayed once, maybe twice, and just feeling this conviction that I needed to follow through and be faithful long term.
1: And as and, and we talk about uh, lending the sense of, of organization, I, I, some people might shudder a little bit and think, oh, my goodness, I have to get an Excel, Excel spreadsheet going now. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. i got to go buy a laptop so I have it handy. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, uh,
0: I, kn- I know that I need simple things that help me, and that's how Pray A to Z started for me, was just out of my own prayer life feeling very overwhelmed and convicted of, you know, running into people later and remembering, oh, I I said I was going to pray long term. And uh, so I just came up with this very simple way. And it started out, you know, note cards, three by five cards, and it grew into a book. I never would have dreamt I would write a book on prayer because I felt like I was the least qualified person to do that.
1: (laughs) As you've approached this, you're you're taking it very um, topical in a sense, and I guess it's true that people tend to, at least my life experiences, tend to fit in you know not 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 neat clean pigeonholes, but it tends to be, for example, there's a couple of people on my prayer list right now that are dealing with cancer, mm-hmm. so they're in the cancer category, mm-hmm. and then it seems perennially there is somebody that I know that's got a son or a daughter or a grandson or a grandchild that's kind of wandered away from the Lord and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, maybe they've had a run-in with the law and things of that sort. So it seems as if um, the older we get, the health concerns, of course, tend to pile up. But it seems as if there are certain perennial categories that that tend to be kind of repetitive. The names may change, but the needs are kind of the same. Does that make sense?
0: It does. Yeah, and that's how it started for me. It was after taking several phone calls and emails from friends all in one day big, heavy requests, adoptions that weren't going well, cancer diagnosis, um, a marriage that was falling apart, when I realized, you know, this is heavy and overwhelming, and I asked God to help me be more faithful in my prayer life, and that was what I, the conclusion I came to, that so many people were struggling with the same types of things. What if I were to pray by category and maybe take one or two per day? And so that's how A became adoptions, and B became bullying, and then we expanded doing several topics per letter. And I found it, um, I kept the topics broad enough so that, yes, under cancer, you will remember your friends, their family members, their caregivers, their hospital staff caring for them, really just very broadly covering all of those struggling with the various topic.
1: And uh, let's see, 26 letters in the alphabet that kind of takes us through um, A to Z literally over the course of a month.
0: Right, right. And I ended up starting with one topic per letter, and then I ended up expanding it to five. So there are 150 different prayers and topics in the book, and um, two for each letter are actually prayers of praise.
1: Yeah, I noticed that, and and was it intentional that you included that in there? Because you know, so often we think about, uh, you know, the, the scripture talks about going to and bringing to the Lord our prayers and supplications, and it tends to usually be a laundry list of heavenly Father, I need so and so needs, the other one <laughs> needs, and it's it's typically uh, all very one way communication in that sense. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we could almost, uh, if 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 heaven had an email address, <laughs> we would we would do that and just say, you know, dear God, here's my list. Uh, uh, get right. back to me when it, when you've answered all those requests. Right. You're, you're you're suggesting a dynamic here that that really helps to not only give us a better sense of discipline about our prayer, but also helps to enrich our relationship with God.
0: Absolutely, because as I prayed, you know, and I was we're looking at you know very heavy topics that we're all facing in our communities. We've mentioned cancer, but then like praying for the homeless and those who are serving them, um, zero prejudice, uh, our lawmakers, all of those big things happening in our communities, it can be very heavy. And I found myself, even in prayer, just feeling just this darkness and feeling overwhelmed. But when I began to praise God and recognizing who it is that I'm talking to, it really lightens the load because we remember that every need we have is met in who He is and it was very exciting as i wrote it so for example like c was cancer and caregivers and then praising god that he's the comforter how very often you know these prayers of praise match up with the needs and recognizing yes we have these hard and heavy things but remember he's almighty he's the comforter he's our helper
1: there's also another dynamic to this that fascinates me and i and i think it's one you know a, a, some people that kind of approach prayer casually Uh, do it. They know they need to do it. They have a sense that it moves the hand of God, so they're obedient in that fashion. But there's lacking any sense of organization. It's easy to rack up the list of all the prayer needs Mm -hmm. and then forget about the times and they are frequent when God answers prayer. And I'm wondering if, in this fashion, in in giving a greater sense of organization to uh, how you pray and remembering to, to remember all the needs that are brought forward, is it also a tool in helping you keep track of, wow, when God answers prayer, let's make note of that, too, and right. also give thanks to the Lord in acknowledging the fact that here's another case where He's answered prayer.
0: Absolutely. With With each topic, I started out with a scripture because I, I really believe in starting with God's Word. What does God say about this topic and this particular issue? And then in the prayer prompt, just a couple sentences, you know, remembering all of the people who are going through this. And then many times I prompted people, you know, think about the times where God has moved in your life in this area and give thanks for that. And then through the prayers, um, to not only think about the current situations, but situations in past, praising God for his faithfulness and how he has worked in these areas.
1: And I think a lot of that helps to to not only give us a greater sense of discipline when it comes to our prayer, but, but also does a phenomenal job in strengthening our relationship and our faith.
0: Right, and that is my hope through all of this that, you know, often if we don't know where to go or we feel like we're just, you know, in a rut with the same things over and over, that it will, it will expand our love for God and our love for our community and that we will begin to experience this deepening relationship with Him as we begin to talk to Him intentionally and purposely, you know, every day.
1: I, funny, I was just looking at the calendar here and and made note of the fact that it's December the 14th. Exactly a year ago today, I was flat on my back in a hospital being treated for cancer Mm. and had suffered something called an ileus. I won't describe it. It's a blockage. Um, As as I told my nurse, uh, it'll be about three hours from now, exactly a year ago. Uh, You Mm -hmm. need to either give me some pain medication or bring me a gun. Mm. horrifically painful experience. Right. And as we're talking, and I'm thinking back exactly a calendar year later at the repeated answers to prayer, including on the day of the most painful day of my hospitalization exactly a year ago today, and I think how grateful I am. To serve a God who not only hears prayer, but who answers prayer, Hmm. and to be mindful and reminded of his faithfulness. And I think we do a good job in bringing those prayers and supplications to the Lord, I think, uh, quite often. But um, the discipline to keep track of all the times that he answers prayer in that miraculous fashion in which he is there with us. Sometimes oh, yeah. we kind of give mental assent to that. But I think actually writing it down and saying, well, we prayed for Uncle Charlie starting on this date and X number of days, weeks, whatever later, here's the date when God answered the prayer. This can be a wonderful resource, too. The book is simply called Pray A to Z, A Practical Guide to Pray for Your Community. That's Pray A to Z, and uh, newly published by a Worthy Inspired. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, also through the uh, usual suspects like Amazon.com. Uh, it's a good read and uh, gives you some great tips. Our thanks to Amelia Rhodes, author of Pray A to Z, A Practical Guide to Pray for Your Community.